Today's reading comes from Psalm 25, verses 1 through 10. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me, for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Maddie, and thank you all for being here today, and Happy New Year. I love this time of year because it is a time of fresh starts, of new beginnings, of, it seems to me, often increased spiritual uh, hunger and desire for spiritual growth. Uh, It's typically a time when church attendance goes up a little bit. Our uh, attendance at church tracks pretty closely with the YMCA and most gyms in town. Uh, January is the peak membership month, and and after Easter, it trails off a little bit. And uh, we really do track pretty closely with that, but I'm so glad you're here today, glad for this time of year. And um, I'd like to begin uh, this morning uh, speaking to, um, well, a brief Q&A, brief Q&A about our church, because sometimes I think we use words when we're uh, presenting on Sunday morning that we fail to define and don't communicate as clearly as we should. And I've been guilty of that, and I need to apologize for not having done a better job of that, particularly with three words you see on the screen. And um, if you were to open your bulletin, your worship guide this morning, you'd see there's a congregational meeting next week where our members will vote. Uh, on something, and in your bulletin, the last sentence under that item you'd read were uh, voting to elect deacons and voting on elders who will serve on the session. Now, if somebody here for the first time might wonder, what's an elder, what's a deacon, what's a session? So I want to take just a moment and um, try to define those terms for you. What is an elder? The word elder comes from the New Testament Greek language. It's, it's a word presbyteros. It gives rise to the word Presbyterian. And the role of an elder in the New Testament is largely spiritual oversight. The New Testament books of 1 Timothy in chapter 3, the book of Titus chapter 1, give qualifications for those who would be chosen to serve as elders. Our form of government here at River Oaks uses elders. That's why it is a Presbyterian form of government. In government with elders, there is shared spiritual oversight. And I think it's a biblical and really great way to to have oversight leadership in the church, as opposed to, say, a situation where one pastor is kind of like the CEO and the president and everything else and makes all the all the call, calls all the shots. 
my mind that doesn't often work out very well, not the most healthy. But our form of government utilizes shared spiritual oversight through elders. So when I think of the role of, of elder, the two words that come first to mind are spiritual oversight. What is a deacon? We started a board of deacons in our church a couple uh, years ago. In fact, I think our first group of deacons has just completed their first full year. In the New Testament, uh, Greek language in which we, we have our manuscripts in the New Testament in Koine Common Greek uh, of Jesus' day, uh, the word for deacon is diakonos. And it's often translated uh, rather than deacon, service or ministry. And so we understand the role of a deacon as largely that of serving the church, doing ministry to and for the people of the church. The office of deacon appears in the New Testament book of Acts when the apostles, Peters and others, saw there were unmet needs among the growing congregation. And so they appointed people to help meet those needs, the needs of the, the church. The qualifications for deacon are given primarily two places. There in the book of Acts, chapter 6, where the office was first uh, instituted uh, and, and people were to be filled with the Spirit uh, of God. And then again in 1 Timothy chapter 3 where there are qualifications for elder, uh, qualifications for deacon are given there. So what's the difference between an elder and a deacon? Well, the role of an elder is largely spiritual oversight. The role of a deacon is largely service ministry to those in the church. And if you look at the qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, they're very similar. One distinction is that an elder is to be able to teach uh, and able to correct wrong doctrine. So that's, that's a primary uh, distinction in the qualification for the two. Now, this is the word most are perhaps unfamiliar with, the word session. What do we mean by that? The word session, <clears throat> it's an old church word that's been around for many, many years. It comes from the Latin word sessio that means seated. And think of it as a, as a group of people seated around a, a boardroom or a table. Um, <clears throat> and it, it, in church use, typically refers to those elders that are actively serving on, for lack of a better word, the church board, dealing with decisions that come uh, to it over time. So an elder, largely spiritual oversight, a deacon, largely service and ministry. And a session, those elders in a church, and in our church at any given time, it's about uh, seven elders who are not staff uh, members or pastors, along with three of us who are uh, pastors, and uh, myself being the moderator of that group. And uh, the elders serve three-year terms uh, on the session. So, that's just a quick attempt to uh, define some of these things. And, and later in the month of January, I'd, I'd like to take a few minutes at the beginning of each service to just try to uh, do a little answer some of the questions that people may have that we could do a better job of uh, being clear about. So if you have questions like that, just let me know and I'll try to address those from time to time. Well, enough about that. This morning, we're beginning a four-week study on the topic of guidance, discovering God's will for your life. 
Do you know that God has always been a guide for his people? From the very beginning of the Bible to the very end of the Bible, we see this consistently with God. He is a guide to his people. He wants to guide his people. He wants them to follow him. The very beginning book of the Bible, the book of beginnings, the book of Genesis, God gives guidance to Adam and to Eve in the Garden of Eden. He gives very specific and clear guidance to Noah when he's to build an ark. He gives guidance to Abraham about following him to a land where he would bless him and uh, give him uh, many descendants. We see it throughout Scripture, the very end of the Bible, the book of Revelation. We see Jesus giving specific guidance to the churches. The image in Scripture, I think, that most clearly points to God's role as the guide of his people is that of a shepherd. Jacob, the grandson of Abraham, when he's dying, and his death is recounted for us in the, in the book of Genesis, says a most beautiful thing. He refers to God as the God who has been my shepherd all my days. Wouldn't you love to be able to say that at the end of your life? God has been my shepherd all the days of my life. We see the image of the shepherd carried throughout Scripture. King David wrote the beautiful 23rd Psalm, and he said, The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me beside still waters. He leads me in paths of righteousness. God, the great shepherd, leads us. And of course, Jesus took to himself the title shepherd. He said, I'm the good shepherd who lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus also said, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. That is, I will always be their guide and they will follow my leading. They'll follow my guidance. Before Jesus left the earth, before he went to the cross where he'd be crucified and then raised from the dead and then he'd ascend to heaven, he told his disciples something remarkable. He said, it is good for you that I'm going away because if I don't go away, the Helper, the Holy Spirit will not come. If I depart though, I'll send him to you. And when he comes, he will guide you. He will guide you into all the truth. He will receive from me and reveal it to you. God has always been a guide for his people. And he is today. But the fact is, many of us, probably all of us, struggle with discerning God's guidance. How do I know which job to take? How do I know where to live? How do I know who to marry? How do I know whether to get married? How do I know whether to buy this house or that house? How do I know whether to buy this car? How do I know where to invest my money? We face decisions like this every day, some large, some small. But I want to begin this morning with where I think our focus should be first and foremost when it comes to guidance. Not to be so concerned with flawless decision making, but rather with getting to know the guide. Getting to know him, who he is, what he's like, because guidance begins with knowing the guide. 
The passage of Scripture we'll look at this morning is Psalm 25. Maddie read the first 10 verses just a moment ago. And I chose that psalm because it is a psalm with a key theme of guidance. But whenever we study Scripture, we want to be sure we understand the the context or the setting in which that Scripture was composed, is given to us. You you can pull a verse here and there out of the Bible and, and craft a message to say about anything you want to say. But our approach to Scripture here is that we always want to present it in its context. And if we read all of Psalm 25, we'd find this was the setting, this was the context, this was what was happening in King David's life. He was facing serious adversity. I'm going to read a few verses from later in the psalm, Psalm 25 and verse 15. David, King David writes, My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. So this is what's going on in his life, in his life when the psalm was composed. I'm lonely, I'm afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. And yet a key theme in the psalm is that of guidance. But it's coming out of a setting in which David, the composer of the psalm, is suffering some serious adversity. Yet in the midst of it, we see that his quest for guidance begins with focusing on the guide. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Now as the psalm unfolds, I think God used David, King David, to teach us some things about guidance. First, about knowing the guide. Sinclair Ferguson, a a great uh, writer, pastor, uh, theologian, teacher, writes in his little book, Discovering God's Will, we learn about guidance primarily by learning about the guide. And that is where I think King David's focus is in the psalm. And he teaches us uh, that we learn, uh, we learn from him in this psalm, I think, three, three things about growing in guidance. And the first is the desire, having the desire to know God's ways. As David is seeking to know God in the midst of his trial. He's seeking deliverance, yes. He's seeking God's intervention, yes. But he's seeking to know God better and to love him more. And he points this first to the desire to know God's ways. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Show me your ways, God. Teach me how you work. Teach me what you're like. And when we know God and when we love God, we desire to do His will. Some of you right now are probably wrestling with a decision and you just want to know God's will. You just, you just want to know what God's will is in this situation that you, you find yourself in. And let me say this to you. You may not get a crystal clear answer. Words may not jump off the page to answer your question. Just the willingness to do God's will is a wonderful indication that you are in His will. 
Learning God's will begins with the willingness to do His will. And Jesus said in the words you see on the screen in John chapter 7, if anyone's will is to do God's will, he'll know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. Our goal should not be struggling to have flawless decision-making. Our starting place rather should be getting to know the guide, to know him, to know his ways. A biblical leader who I think exemplifies this is Moses. The story of Moses is given us in the Old Testament, starting in the book of Exodus. Moses is known as one of the greatest leaders whose, whose life is recorded in Scripture, but Moses was a, a, a really reluctant leader. He didn't want to be the one sent into Egypt to get the Israelites out of slavery under Pharaoh. He was a very reluctant leader, a meek person, a humble person. And yet God gave him extraordinary responsibilities, leading hundreds of thousands of Israelites, receiving the Ten Commandments. But Moses, in all that he faced in life, good and bad, he learned what was most important. And you see it in the words on the screen from the book of Exodus. He's crying out to God when God has given him just an incredible responsibility, mandate. Before he undertakes it, this is his cry to God. Now therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me your ways that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. A life that's guided by God's hand is a life that begins with knowing the guide, knowing him better, loving him more. Guidance and smaller decisions will become more clear over time if our focus is first and most on knowing the guide. As King David said, show me your ways, teach me your paths. David goes on to stress not only the desire to know God's ways, but the desire to learn God's truth. Lead me in your truth, David goes on to say in Psalm 25, and teach me, for you're the God of my salvation. Now think about this for a moment. He is in the midst of what appears to be life-threatening adversity, a terrible trial, terrible circumstances, the kind of trial that would probably keep you awake at night, stressed out over what's happening in your life. Yet in the midst of it, he's praying God, teach me some things. I need to learn from you. I need to learn about you. I'm willing to grow through this adversity. Teach me. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. I want your deliverance, yes. I need your intervention. But in this trial, help me to learn your truth. Now, a biblical example of a person who shows this kind of a hunger and a desire is Mary in the New Testament. Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus were friends of Jesus. And sometimes they opened their home to him, gave hospitality to Jesus and to his disciples. One journey, Luke chapter 10 records that as they were on their way, Jesus entered a village and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her home. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet and listened to his teaching. 
But Martha was distracted with much serving, and she went up to him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Tell her then to help me. But the Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you're anxious and troubled about many things. One thing is necessary. Mary has chosen the good portion, which will not be taken away from her. Jesus says the good portion is what Mary was doing, sitting at the Lord's feet, listening to his teaching, eager to learn, eager to know God by learning the teaching of Christ. God has been pleased to give us his truth in a way that even Moses and Mary and the early disciples did not have in Scripture. Jesus called Scripture the Word of God. And in the same in another passage in the Gospel of John says, Thy word is truth. So when we think about learning God's will and ways and being taught his truth, God has provided that truth for us in Scripture. Uh, Genesis to Revelation. I believe the primary way God guides his people is through his word, through Scripture. Furthermore, Scripture provides us a way, a standard by which to evaluate or judge any other forms of guidance. Somebody may come to you and say, I believe God has told me, I believe God has shown me you're to do this. Whenever somebody says something like that to me, I'm always tempted to say, well, I wonder why he, since it's about me, I wonder why he told you and not me. But the fact is, we can judge, we can evaluate, we can discern these things by Scripture. God guides us primarily through Scripture. Now, certainly there are other forms of guidance, wise counsel. Many parts of the world today, people don't have Scripture. Uh, and when they do, many people in the world, millions of people today, are in countries where the Bible's being translated, but they're illiterate. Can't read it. They can't understand it. And God certainly can guide folks apart from Scripture, but He will never guide them contrary to Scripture. Scripture is always a way we can judge and evaluate all forms of guidance. Are you seeking to learn God's truth? greatest way, I think, to know about God is by learning what He's revealed of Himself, His will, His ways, and His Word. That's why we're a church that teaches the Bible, Noah's Ark for our young children, uh, and youth and in Kids Rock for our students, and of course, here on Sunday morning. Maybe this is the year for you to get in a small group and dig more deeply into God's Word. But I would strongly encourage you to develop the daily practice of reading and studying the Bible for yourself. I was talking to somebody the other day who had never read, read the Bible. And I encouraged this person to start with the New Testament because I think you can understand the old better in light of the new. But if you're a seasoned Christian, if you've read a good bit of the Bible before, I'd encourage you to read through the Bible in the year. Go by our resource center, get a read through the Bible in the year plan. And, uh, and use that for your reading and your study this year. So guidance, the desire to know God and know His ways, the desire to learn His truth. And then thirdly, David teaches us in this psalm the importance of having the willingness to wait on the Lord. 
Guidance from God typically does not come. It may come, I suppose, immediately, but typically in big decisions of life, it seems to me it comes over time. And David, though King David was a a remarkably capable leader, capable warrior, capable king in person, he learned the great value of not taking matters into his own hand, forcing things to happen on his own, making decisions apart from the leading and wisdom and will of God. He had learned to wait on God. And so he prays, lead me in your truth and teach me for your God my salvation. For you I wait all the day. Now I think it's important to say that the word wait as used in Scripture uh, is not typically the way we use the word wait today. We think of, of waiting as, uh, well, having to wait, uh, wasting time sometimes, waiting at a stoplight, uh, waiting for a doctor's appointment, waiting around. Wait, as it's used here in many places in the book of Psalms, carries quite a different meaning. It's active waiting. It's attentiveness to God. It's focused attention on Him. It's eager expectation. As the prophet Isaiah says in chapter 40 and verse 31 of the book of Isaiah, those who wait on the Lord renew their strength. They'll mount up with wings as eagles. They'll run and not be weary. They'll walk and not faint. In other words, the waiting on the Bible spoken of, waiting on God spoken of in the Bible gives a spiritual strengthening. It is an eager expectation, uh, anticipation, looking to God to work on your behalf. And I think we see it uh, very clearly if we're looking at a biblical example in the life of David himself. Later in the psalm in verse 15, he, he expresses what he means by waiting on the Lord. When he says, my eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. He's in terrible adversity, perhaps life-threatening, but he's waiting on God. And he's he's telling us how he's waiting on God. My eyes are ever toward the Lord. It's an active waitingness. It's an attentiveness to God. It's giving God focused attention. It's realizing your dependence upon him, your reliance upon him, that he is the solution to your problem. As I mentioned a moment ago, King David was a remarkably capable leader. And his life is a great contrast to the very capable leader who preceded him, the King Saul. And if you read about David and Saul, you go back into the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. It's a, it's a fascinating study of two different leaders. Saul, handsome, uh, capable leader, initially very, very successful, soon proved himself to be a man who would not wait upon God, but rather in his great capabilities take matters into his own hands to make them happen. David, capable as well, though he stumbled, though he sinned, though he was impulsive at times like his Uh, adultery with Bathsheba, learned as a man after God's own heart to wait upon God. Even in warfare, God show me 
how to approach this battle. God show me where to go. It's an interesting study, a contrast between the two. Have you learned to wait upon God? You're facing a need, you need an answer to prayer, you need to make a decision, you need a solution to some crisis in which you are. Have you learned to express your dependence upon God, seek Him and wait for Him to provide the solution, to provide the guidance you need? I think there are two things that work against many of us when it comes to giving God this type of focus attention and drawing our strength from Him and getting our needed solution or guidance from Him. The first of those, I think, is control. Some of, some of you may be people who feel like, you know, um, I think I can solve any problem. I, I, I think I have the capability to do it. I know how to take matters in hand. Whatever the problem, I can fix it. I can fix it. Yes, God's given me the ability, and after all, the Bible says God helps those who help themselves. That's really not a verse in the Bible, by the way. That's not. Though most would say it is. I think if, if we think that way in life, God will at some point allow us to be confronted with a situation that we are unable to solve humanly so that we learn our dependence upon Him and the need to seek Him. It's much better to start by seeking God and His wisdom. There's something else that I, I, I see today distracting God's people from focused attention upon Him from waiting upon Him in prayer, from having our eyes ever toward the Lord, and it's distraction. It's, for many, in the form of something like this right here. And I, in a given month, I, I get the opportunity to be in prayer meetings with different people, some different settings, and... Um, you know, I've learned sometimes in, in prayer meetings with um, pastors, sometimes from different churches around our area, that there are some, and I've, I've done this myself, but there's some who do this a lot, can hardly pray for two or three minutes without reaching over and checking that phone. It's like it's a part of their, their body. It can't do without and I tell you, it can become, and it's funny, but it's, it's also serious. It's, it's become known now by many, and I'm not talking about in the church, I'm just talking about in our world at large, that it really is an addiction for many. Um, I was reading about that this week, and I, I looked at, um, read about this new company, this startup company called Yonder, Y-O-N-D-R. You heard about that company? Anybody seen their little pouches they do? Um, it's a, a, a technology person, I think, in Silicon Valley started this company, and it's a little pouch that you slip your phone in, and it, and it locks. And there's a radio frequency way that it unlocks at a certain period of time, so it locks up your phone. And um, it started with uh, concerts and comedy clubs. And the, if, you, if you look at their... Uh, website and see one of their uh, videos, there's a, a fairly well-known comedian, 
And he said, I got so tired of people in the audience while I was speaking to them, looking at their phones, that he's required this. So when you go into the venue, you've got to give up your phone and put it in one of these little pouches that, that won't open up until the event is over. It's been happening at concerts as well. Understand it's been used at more than a thousand schools. One woman interviewed, um, and I think she was going to a, a concert, said, well, um, it was like I lost a limb off my body. But she said, I found I was better able to be in the moment, in the moment, uh, enjoying focused time with, with people. We were at a Christmas dinner with my uh, uh, family and uh, my siblings and kids. And there was a table of a group of kids between about the ages of 6 and 17. Only get together maybe, maybe, maybe a couple times a year, maybe once a year. So I, I, I got the biggest kick out of this, although it was a little bit sad. These kids are close. They're fantastic. They love each other a lot. But I looked over at them at one moment, and every single one at the table of seven or eight, annual time of fellowship together, every single one was like this with, with the phone. Does your phone distract you that way? You see, as followers of Jesus, we have a much higher goal than enjoying a concert or a comedian a little more. We have the opportunity, the privilege of direct fellowship with the creator of all things himself. And when you are praying to him and spending time with him, you have his undivided attention. How must he feel if we've got to keep looking over and checking something every few minutes rather than giving him our undivided attention? Now, if that's an addiction for you or your kids, somebody in your, your house, uh, let this be a year when you focus on knowing the guide, knowing him better, loving him more. God longs to have fellowship with you. He gives you his undivided attention. The book of Proverbs, I think, says his eyes are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. Are our eyes on him? Or are our ears open to him? Does he have our undivided attention? King David's pointing us toward that. I want to end because I've gone way over time and we got a really important guest about to come up here with this question for you. How can I know God better in 2019? The prophet Jeremiah said, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. This for us is the highest goal in 2019. Now you may say, I don't know if I know God yet at all. Jesus said, this is eternal life, that they know you in Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Jesus provided the way for every one of us to know him. 
He died on the cross. He shed his blood. He laid down his life so that we could receive his righteousness, his life eternal by placing our faith in him. That is the starting place. That is the doorway into a life of fellowship with the God who created you and who delights to hear your prayers and to fellowship with you. Would you join me as we pray about that now? Father, bring the power of the Holy Spirit to work among us so that this year we come to know you better and to love you more. For those who don't know you truly yet, bring them into this life-giving relationship through faith in Jesus. And for the rest of us, let us know you as the great shepherd of the sheep, our Lord, our Savior, our guide, and yes, even our friend. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.